Good evening and welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Thanks for joining us on yet another episode. After years of Stu tracking down pretty much every single spinner he could get in contact with, it's great for me to welcome another wicketkeeper to the show and a quality one at that. He's got over 100 ODIs for Ireland to his name, a surname that's played a massive role in Irish cricket over many years and joins us from the UAE where he's set to commentate on the upcoming T20 World Cup. Niall O'Brien, welcome to the Top Order podcast. Hello, gentlemen, a fellow wicketkeeper. This is wonderful. This this show has started off on the best possible foot. I'm delighted to be in, in the company of a great wicketkeeper like yourself. Well, I wouldn't go that far. And look, it can only go downhill from here. And look, we're keen to take a trip down memory lane with you, but want to start with the T20 World Cup, which is why you're in the UAE. And tell us a little bit, first and foremost, about Ireland's prep. How much has COVID impacted their cricket over the last 18 months or so? Uh, for Ireland, they've actually played a lot of cricket the last what, 18 months, two years, I'd say. They've played uh, a lot of ODI cricket, a fair bit of T20 cricket of late. So for any of the teams, Ireland are probably as well prepared as any. Um, in saying that, their performances and results... Um, won't leave the squad right now. As you sit here in the UAE right now, I'm sure that squad will be confident, but there will be a few alarm bells ringing. They just lost the series to the UAE one, uh, 2-1 after winning the first T20 International fairly comfortably. Um, so I think their preparation in terms of game time and having a chance to have a look at a lot of cricket has been good. But the fact that uh, results probably haven't been that good will be a little bit of a concern. It's certainly a concern for me. Um, you know, somebody working obviously on the broadcast, but with a keen interest in Irish cricket. Um, obviously, I want them to get through that group, that initial group, which will be very, very difficult, um, and go as far as they can. But I think it's going to be very, very difficult. But saying that, they've got some real match winners. So hopefully, Ireland are notoriously slow starters in competitions and tours. They always were, they always have been. Even when I was playing, we never really played very well at the start of, the start of a tournament. But um, they need to get the get the head down and get the ball rolling early doors in this comp because they've got the Netherlands first up, which is an absolutely massive game. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, that group there and, and a tough group. We were chatting with Daniel Bezik from uh, the Emerging Cricket Podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about who's going to get through that pool. Are you confident that the guys are going to get through? And from a playing perspective, Paul Sterling in particular looks like he's been in great touch lately, uh, particularly in that hundred tournament in the UK. Any anyone else we should be watching out for? Well first I want to know what Daniel said. I want to know what Daniel said. Who did Daniel have getting through that group? Because I'll be on to Daniel straight away. Who who's he tipped to go through before I give my nominations? Yeah look I, I think um he hedged his bets a hell of a lot um through yeah through the the podcast but I'm I'm pretty sure he you know he felt Sri Lanka would get through and then he thought it was going to be nip and tuck between you guys and the Netherlands I think was his um, summation. But for any listeners of our podcast, you'll know that even when we make predictions, we can't remember in the next podcast. So that could be completely erroneous information. Um, but yeah, from a playing perspective, who, who are you looking at? Well, I think <laughs> everyone thinks Sri Lanka should walk through, and, and their one of their press releases was extraordinary. Some of the some of the terms and language. So listen, I wouldn't be surprised if the Netherlands and Ireland got through. But in saying that, I think. Hasaranga, Chimera, some of these guys that Sri Lanka do have. I think Sri Lanka will get through. Um, I would love Netherlands and Ireland to get through. I'd love Namibia to get through, actually, because they're, they're a good side as well. Um, and I think Ireland, I think they'll win that first game against the Netherlands, and that will just give them enough confidence to get through. It might be squeaky bump time some of the games. I don't think it's going to be very convincing. I don't think it's going to be any of the games are going to be very straightforward. Um but I'm thinking Ireland will just about sneak past the Netherlands, and I think Ireland will go through with Sri Lanka. So uh, if Daniel has gone for that, yeah, I'm in good company, as it were. But I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, the groups obviously changed. Ireland initially uh, were, in a, were in a different group from the start, and they got changed then with some of the ranking uh, points changed. So Ireland, I think, got a got a tougher group than originally expected. But um, they're all tough games. Listen, Namibia good side you know Erasmus the captain is a good cricketer Craig Williams is having a, a rebirth as an all-rounder that middle order they've obviously got um, David Visa on board you know taking time off from his Foo Fighters engagements so 
it's, it's, it's unbelievable. The Namibians could turn over any side of that group on their day. So uh, that's what it's all about. I think um, this T20 World Cup is going to throw up a lot of surprises. There are a couple of powerhouses in it, obviously the likes of England and India, but everyone else, uh, they're up for grabs, I reckon. You kind of mentioned there, I guess, the depth in um, associate cricket. In your role as an agent, how hard is it for players, and I'm particularly obviously thinking about the Irish players like a Paul Sterling and other players from, um, you know, the associate nations and, and the... And the uh, nations a little bit lower down the rankings to put themselves in the spotlights for franchise cricket. As an agent, are you having to ring up and pitch your guys, or are, are they seeing? You know, are they being seen on the stage and sort of picked up for those T Twenty leagues? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of both, really, a combination of both. Um, someone like Paul Sterling now is is such a household name, and especially um, delivering in the in the hundred competition, as you mentioned earlier, Adam. Um, that has done wonders for his his. Um, I suppose performances and opportunities moving forward. Um, the T Twenty T Twenty Blast in England. A lot of Irish players have played that competition, but because a lot of the, those games aren't actually televised, uh, franchises around the world didn't take that much heed or that much note of those games. It's amazing what a performance on TV can do. Um, even if you have five bad games, but then you play a blast game on telly and get eighty or ninety or fifty balls, all of a sudden. You know, you're a world beater and half the franchises around the world want to sign you. Associate cricketers, it is difficult, I must say. Um, Norman Vanua, actually, from Papua New Guinea, attracted quite a bit of interest ahead of the T10 draft, um, which was brilliant for Norman because I think he's a quality cricketer. Um, and I think he's someone that a franchise tournament, um, a team would do really well to pick a player like him because he can bowl good pace, he's got good Yorkers, and he can hit a clean ball. But it is difficult. You know, there still is a bit of naivety or even call it ignorance with some franchises and I'll say some because a lot of them have run very very well and a lot of them do their research and got some excellent people behind the scenes um, but it is tough for the associate players to get recognition um, you know I had I had a, a team from a one of the biggest tournaments in the world asked me for a an all-rounder I gave them an all-rounder from Zimbabwe who was Offered him an all-rounder from Zimbabwe, who was third in the world at the time in the rankings. Um, you can probably work out who it was. And I was told we don't want club cricketers. So, you know, that's what you're up against sometimes. So that is disappointing to hear, um, especially for someone from a full full member nation like a Zimbabwe, for example. But in saying that, a lot of the franchises around the world are run very well. Someone like Josh Little had a lot of interest in this T10. There's already teams in England looking after, looking out for him and, and PSL, etc. Um, one of the IPL franchises wanted Josh to go over as a, um, they call it kind of a elite, uh, elite net bowler, they call it, but it's basically have a look at somebody. So I think the world is changing a little bit. Um, franchises want a bit more bang for the buck, and if they can get someone from an associate level at a lower price who can deliver the same job as somebody who's a bit more experienced, I think they'll go for it. But it is a bit of a slow, slow process. And uh, it's one that constantly myself and other other agents around the world having to having to really push. Yeah, and the World Cup, certainly with the Associate Nations playing in that first round, is a great opportunity for players like that to showcase their skills. Your involvement in the tournament, you're over there as a, as a commentator. You've had a few gigs lately uh, in different parts of the world. How are you enjoying being behind the microphone? Yeah, I love it. Um, it's, you know, what I, what I would love to do, you know, 24-7 if, if the opportunities were there. Um, I've, I've kind of been very interested in doing it probably since about 2013 2014 even when i was still playing county cricket i used to often um badger the people at sky sports and bbc for for some work when i wasn't uh playing my county matches so kind of it's been a it's been a process it's been an ongoing process i love it i really do uh, i love the game of cricket i'm a cricket badger i'm a cricket tragic um probably like yourself so i've done a fair bit of work for the icc over the last kind of two or three years which has been really enjoyable and I've got an opportunity to work at this for the ICC and Star Sports. So, yeah, it's going to be great. I think it's going to be a really good tournament. Um, crowds are going to be back, which is going to be absolutely massive for the players themselves. For A lot of these players haven't played in front of spectators for a long time. Um, and to play, the ticket sales here have been really, really positive. So that's going to obviously help the production and help the, the visuals and getting a full crowd in. But internally, uh, we need good cricket. So uh, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of that. And I'm looking forward to it. I'll go anywhere to commentate, to be honest with you. I've been to Bangladesh five or six times working there. 
I love it there. It's a bit like a home from home now when I go to Dhaka and a place like that. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a really enjoyable. I, I don't really call it a job because I'm watching cricket. I love cricket, and I'm just kind of talking to you know legends of the game. You know, hopefully, get to work with some brilliant people at this tournament, um, both from the UK, commentators in the UK and around the world. So uh, I've been lucky to commentate with Sonny Gavaskar on India Ireland in front of 15,000 people in Dublin on a gloriously hot summer day many, many years ago. That was absolutely like heaven to me. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's great fun. I'm really enjoying the ride. Do you find it weird to commentate on your brother and like other guys you know pretty well? Does that make for like a real interesting Sunday family dinner conversation if you had to sort of give him a bit of a critique when you're, when you're commentating on his game? Well, I reckon in terms of Kevin, I think I'm probably even more harsh. Um, I think I have to be. I think there's probably, and it might be only in my head, but I feel like everyone's probably thinking or watching what's Nile going to say when Kevin plays a bad shot, for example. So I'm probably harsher on Kevin than I would be on on most players um, for a similar mistake or a similar poor execution, for example. And it's been known that uh, my mum has been on the phone to me straight after a game saying I was too harsh to Kevin and look after your little baby brother. Um, my response is, he's 36, he hit a full toss straight to mid-on. What can I say? <laughs> but yeah, listen, it's it's pretty good nature. Me, me and Kevin get on well. And all my mates know that, you know, I am commentating on what I see. I, I make no bones about it. I think someone's had a poor game or a poor mistake. You know, that's my job. I'm there to, I'm there to call that. Um, I don't like to sit in fences. I never sat in a fence once in my life as a player and I'm not going to start now. So if they don't like it, well, they don't have to watch the highlights. Yeah. A lot of our listeners will know about your brother, Kevin, but also your dad played cricket captain Ireland. I believe your older sister was quite handy as well. Uh, we've had the Hussey brothers on the podcast. Um, tell us their backyard games were pretty competitive on often ended up in swearing and punch ups and being separated by their mum. What was it like at the O'Brien household? Yeah. All of the above. Um, I suppose the Hussies, they don't strike me as people who swear and curse and fight, but that's good to know because I know I know David especially well. I don't know Michael that well, but uh, I'll bring it up with, with David Hussey next time I see him. That's good to know that he was a bit of a, a swearer and a puncher and a scrapper. Um, all right, well, I'm one of six kids, uh, first and foremost, so um, all my all my siblings are excellent cricketers and excellent hockey players. Um, my dad, obviously, is a legend of Irish sport, as you mentioned, cricket captain, Interprovincial hockey player, professional footballer. So, yeah, he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a leg end, as we call him in Dublin, leg end of of Irish sport. So we used to have great games in the garden, um, punching, swearing, fighting, tick tick tick, all of the above for me. Uh, that was kind of my role. Um, Antagonise the opposition, whether it be my brother, my sister, or one of my older brothers. I was there to win. It didn't matter if it was backyard, front yard, you know, playing football, cricket, hockey. I was there to win. That's all I wanted to do. Um, poor Kevin tells the tales of bowling to me for hours in the garden and then me bashing him around the garden and him batting and me nicking him off early on bowling my little bowling my little Steve Walls medium paces and then making a ball for hours and hours on end because Kevin used to be a bowler of course as a youngster he wasn't really a batter um, so we had we had great games it was, a, it was a fun household to grow up in but there were a lot of fights there were a lot of arguments um, but I think that's what kind of drove us to that competitive nature and made us who we are as sports people. My sister played hockey for Ireland, I think 200, over 200 times. And my three elder brothers are all excellent cricketers, excellent hockey players. So I think coming from that big family and that competitive edge and having dad as a role model and uh, being the elite sportsman he was, uh, it kind of shaped us really. Yeah, and I mean, it's an unusual... I guess not not the traditional sport that um, Irishmen play growing up. A lot of them play, you know, hurling and and Gaelic football and, and, you know, all all sorts of different sports. But you grew up playing cricket. What was that like? Was that, did you find it unusual or was it just part and parcel of of who your family was because of the connections with your dad growing up? And I guess, when did you sort of think that cricket might become a career for you? Well, yeah, good, good question, really. it, it's twofold, you know. The area I grew up in Dublin was very much. Uh, um, it's where the kind of English came and settled in Ireland way back, you know, going back hundreds of years. You know, the roads around my area, Prince of Wales Terrace, etc. So cricket, and ho- cricket, hockey, and rugby in my in my village, we we'll call it a village. It's more than a village now, but a little place called Sandyman. Cricket, hockey, and rugby 
through three games you would kind of associate with England and Britain were very prevalent in that area. So playing cricket for, and hockey and rugby for that matter, I didn't play much rugby, but cricket and hockey was second nature to me and my family. That's that's what we did. We played all sports. You know, we play, I played every sport under the sun, um, Gaelic and hurling, and I loved Gaelic and hurling at school, etc. But, you know, run home from school, get my cricket bat up to the cricket club, Railway Union, a sports club, and play there for hours, run home for dinner, and then run back up again and play some more. So it was very normal in that existence. But at the same time, in my school life, both primary and more secondary, it was very much a kind of like a hidden secret. Nobody really knew I played cricket in secondary school. Not that I was ashamed of playing cricket or anything, but it wasn't spoken about. And the people, and the kind of, uh, I suppose, a lot of the kind of demographics that went to my secondary school wouldn't have associated themselves with cricket and, and wouldn't have been interested in cricket. So I basically kept that to myself all through my secondary school. There was a number of people who played cricket in school who knew I played cricket, but generally not many people knew I played cricket because I was a good I was a good footballer. I played Gaelic and hurling was, um, to a decent standard as well. Um, cricket got a push, pushed away under the carpet for the off-season while I was at school, apart from my Friday nights when I went training for my kind of representative team. But then when I was picked for the Ireland in the 19s World Cup tour to Sri Lanka, I was about 17, and the prime, the prime minister, the principal, uh, made a big announcement over the internal school tannoy to congratulate me for selection of the Irish in the 19s cricket team. And uh, you can imagine the, the whiplash on my classmates when they looked around to look at me, this kind of cool kid who played football and Gaelic and hurling. I was, I was really one of the lads, to be honest with you. I was a bit of a, I was a, bit of a lad around, around the school. I wasn't that studious. I was a bit of a messer, as they call us. And uh, they found they find out that I was this cricket geek. <laughs> uh, it was pure amazement. But so that was kind of it was a two two scale kind of a teenage approach, really. And just sort of taking a step back before we move forward, just going back to your dad's era of playing cricket in Ireland and for Ireland. What was that like for him representing his side and representing his country? Like, did he play many first class fixtures? What was it like representing um, Ireland at cricket in his day? Well, yeah, totally different than, than the boys nowadays. They were all all amateurs. My dad, my dad was a civil servant, so he would work you know, 50, 60 hours a week and, and play cricket on the weekends and in the evenings. Even when he got picked to play for national duty, even as captain playing for Ireland, he had to take time off work. So he, he, won't, he won't admit this, but I think it was a chance for him and his teammates when they played cricket to get together and have a bit of a have a bit of a laugh, really play a game of cricket. Yeah, do as well as you can. But I think it was it was a chance for fifteen blokes to get, probably get away from their family for a bit and uh, play some cricket against some good sides and have a good time. You know, my dad played against he played against the best in the world. Um, looking back, looking over his stats, I think he, he didn't do as well as he probably could have done. I think he was a much better player than his his numbers would suggest. Because um, I had the I was very fortunate to open the batting with my dad in first grade for two or three years at the start of my first grade career when I was about 15 and at the back end of his career, he was kind of late 50s. So he was still playing first grade. He holds all the records. Most runs in first grade in Ireland, 23,000, I think. Most appearances, around 700 appearances and most catches and all that kind of thing. So he is a legend, um, an absolute legend, but and someone we all looked up to massively in the family uh, but he wasn't, you know, he, he never interfered with my my game. I, you know, I think that was a real massive kind of uh, plus point in my dad's kind of cricket education for me. If I needed help, I went to him for help, but he never was pushy. You see a lot of parents these days on the side of a pitch um, barking orders at the kids, whether it be footy or whether it be cricket or hockey, rugby, whatever the sport. My dad was never like that. He let us make our own mistakes. And then when we went to him for a bit of help, he was there to help. He knew we had our coaches in place who he respected, uh, but at the same time, he was there to impart some wisdom if we needed it. So, I think it was a pretty good. He was a pretty good role model, and still, it still is a very good role model. But um, for a young cricketer, whether it be my dad or just anyone's kind of coming through, uh, Ginger O'Brien, they look up to. Well, no, that's a, an awesome segue into the next couple of questions and. Look, I just echo that. I, my my dad um, played a pretty decent standard of cricket, and I never knew when he'd come and watch me play. Um, he, he'd never push that information onto onto me. 
Uh, he might often make a comment a few weeks later. He'd be like, oh, that's the way you got out against so-and-so when he was giving me throwdowns. But I'd be like, were you even there? Um, and I think that, you know, that's, a, I guess, a bit of a lesson for parents, isn't it, to um, kind of let their, uh, let their charges learn their own way. Talking about learning your own way, you, you've talked a bit in the past about how your time in grade cricket really helped you. Um, and I guess some really stories as well around Shoaib, Andrew Strauss, the Lee brothers that you, you were playing with. Um, so I, I want to ask you a question around, you know, what was the sledging like and what did you get as an Irishman? And then if you will indulge me for a second, I do want to link that with a little bit of a cricketing badger question. I, I had a season playing grade cricket as a keeper in, in Brisbane. Um, they often say England's a really difficult place to, to keep wicket. And I was sort of 19, 20 when I went out to Brisbane and got sort of coerced into taking the ball on the inside hip and really focusing on that length of catch. But how did that sort of technique really hone your keeping? Did you Were you able to bring any of that back um, to your cricket at home? And then secondly, we want to hear some sledges from Sydney grade cricket as well. So yeah, give us a, yeah, give us a little bit of that as well. <laughs> you've, you've thrown a lot at me there. I've got I've got the attention span of a gnat, but anyway, I'll give it I'll give it a go. Uh, I think first of all, you know your, your cricket badger question about keeping. I, I was a similar age. I was eighteen. You know, pretty wet behind the ears. Um, hadn't done a lot of keeping. You know, I was a wicket keeper, uh, bats a wicket keeper, but I hadn't kept wicket much for a number of years. Uh, Apart from a bit of club cricket, really, I wasn't keeping from a province. So to go and keep in Australia, I was almost kind of, kind of, working it out as I went along. I also got sucked into the you know, the Australian way of keeping, um, with the long long take and take on the inside hip. And I, I did that for a few years when I came back. But as soon as I moved to the UK, I, I cut that out straight away because with the ball wobbling around, I just couldn't afford to um, to kind of keep like that. It was too difficult. I found it too difficult. So I suppose I went from keeping like as I did as a young Irish person, moving to, moving to play in Australia, kind of keeping the Adam Gilchrist, Ian Healy way as you were, watching those kind of guys, those legends. And then when I went to England, I kind of started keeping a bit more old-fashioned, especially at, at Kent, who've got such a historic, brilliant his, history of keepers, you know, Notty, etc. So I went a bit more traditional. So I suppose I was kind of swings and roundabouts. So I kind of went with what, what was natural in, in whatever kind of climate, whatever kind of country I was in. Uh, great cricket for me. Yeah, I grew up obviously watching cricket in the 90s, BBC, you know, Richie Benno on commentary, um, England playing Australia a lot of time, played a lot against Australia, obviously. My heroes were Steve Waugh. He's my favourite player of all time. Absolute legend of a player. Coached me when I was young, when he came over to Ireland, I think it was 1997. He gave me his one-day cap. I've got a picture signed by Steve Waugh on my wall pride of place in my office. Um, so I loved I loved Australia. I love what Australian cricket stood for, even though I'd never been to Australia at this stage. I loved how they went about their business. I think it was in the winter as well, watching cricket in Australia. Sun was shining. The pitches looked good. They had a brilliant team. Warney was ripping it. Great fast bowlers with McGrath. Craig McDermott was probably one of my favourite fast bowlers. I used to pretend to be Craig McDermott in the front garden with this kind of slightly unusual run-up and little slightly... Um, Unusual action. Uh, I love Mark Wall, brilliant player. Tubby Taylor was brilliant batsman for me. I could, the list goes on, really. Herb Elliott, I loved Herb Elliott. Matthew, Matthew Elliott. I, you know, anyone left hand, basically anyone left handed in Australia, you know, I loved you. And obviously Steve Wall, people like that. Even, so, even, David, even David Warner? Warner? Oh, well, I'm talking about the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. I, I worked, you know, I, I, in my summer holidays since I was 13, I worked, you know, my, my dream was once I finished school, mom, dad, I'm going to Australia. They said, my mom and dad had never been to Australia. They said, what, what do you know about Australia? I said, very little, but the cricket looks good. I want to go play cricket in Australia. And we had a couple of Aussies playing uh, club cricket in Dublin. They said, no, but you need to go to Australia. You, you love it. You love the way they play the game over there, the mentality, sunshine, all that. So I said, yeah. So I was saving basically since I was 13, 14, my summer, my summer work money to go to Australia. And I, you know, I'm very proud that when I turned 18, I funded my own, my own trip to Australia, self-funded it to play great cricket. Trent Johnson was my link, uh, ex-Ireland captain. He had played in Ireland for many, many years, club cricket, um, met, his, met his then wife and moved back to Australia. I was playing for North Sydney at the time. But just before I was about to book my ticket, he said, listen, Nobby, I might be moving, moving clubs. So I said, okay, hold, hold fire, let me know. So he moved from North Sydney to Mossman. 
which was a bit of a contentious move back then because their their rivals on the North Shore, you know, North Sydney Bears were historically you know, a very successful club, played at North Sydney Oval, which is you know very famous for cricket and rugby. I think they played a, a bit of rugby there as well, um, the North Sydney Bears. And then Mossman was this kind of new, new age club with a bit of money behind them. So a lot of players were going there. So Trent Trent moved across um, to Mossman, and that's where I ended up my first two years. I played um, two years at Mossman, and I had a, had a cracking time, I must say. I went with one of my mates joined me. Um, he was a musician slash fifth grade cricketer, brilliant bloke. Um, and we had a right we had a right good time. But I played, yeah, Shane Lee was there. Shane played a lot of cricket, actually. Um, Brett didn't play that much cricket with myself and Brett um, share our same birthday. So we kind of um, got to know each other quite well, me and Binger, and still do. And we'll still speak from time to time. And whenever we cross paths, is a bit of a, a nice catch up and catch up at all times. So, you know, we had some good, some really good cricketers. Tracy was there the first year. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And Strauss, I think the previous season got 164. I'm kind of clutching figures a little bit from the top of my head. It's a long time ago now. It's, well, 2000. So his first year was 99. So we're going back 20 odd years. I think he got 164 on his first grade debut, Strauss, and got about 500 runs all season after that. So I think people were like, well, what's going on here? Another, we've got another, another guy coming over from from that part of the world, how's he going to go? But thankfully, uh, Straussy was actually a really good role model. I think he was yeah, the utmost professional. Uh, and Mossman had a really good team. We had Phil Alley, big left arm, quick. Warwick Adlam played for New South Wales. TJ, as I mentioned. Next thing is Show Bakhtar's playing for Mossman. So we've all of a sudden, we've got Show Bakhtar and Brett Lee opening the bowling against Randwick Petersham on a Sunday afternoon at Allen Border Oval. And there must have been 5,000 people at this game. And as a Mossman player, we all expected Brett and Shoab to absolutely roll them over. Well, Richard Chiqui from Randwick Petersham, he had other ideas. I think he got about 120, and he smoked the boys all over the Allen Border Oval. It was an absolutely brilliant display of batting from a top-class cricketer, actually. Richard Chiqui, I don't know if you know much about him, he was a seriously good, great cricketer. Should have played a lot for New South Wales. I think he played a bit for New South Wales, maybe a little bit for Tassie, if I'm mistaken. Uh, but probably should have played a lot more for for the Blues. But brilliant player, Chiqui. Um, and he kind of stole the headlines that day at Allen Border Oval. But I kind of had two years of Mossman, played kind of mainly twos cricket because we had Straussy there. He could only play one overseas, obviously. But that was fine. I had a good time. I, I started batting number two. I, I came to Australia as, a, as a number three opening batter. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> Peter Philpott, the ex-Aussie leggy, uh, called out the teams around one of the season. And I was in second grade, which was great because I was 18. They needed a keeper and, and I couldn't play first grade because Straussy was there. My name got called out very late on Thursday evening in the in the team sheet. And I thought, well, I presume that's just you know alphabetical or something. I can't be batting number nine. Well, I was worse. I think I was batting number 10 first game. And I said to the skipper, Andrew Yates, he's a great guy and a good mate of mine. Um, I think he's, he's CEO of KPMG Australia now or something. Doing very doing very well for himself, Yates, he's my old mucker. Um, he said, Irish, you know, I know you, you're used to batting up the order, but we've got a good team. You know, we've got Jimmy Sinclair, they call him nuts. Jimmy Sinclair bats three and, you know, we've got X4, five. He's a good player, five. You can't drop him. I said, mate, I'm, a, I'm an opening bat. He said, just... Get the head down, keep well, and you know when you get to bat number nine or ten, every game just go in and get it. play. Obviously, play for the team, but make sure you're not out at the end of the innings. Whether you're ten not out, twenty not out, two not out. Um, so I took that information on board and I went out and played for the team. Obviously, every time, but a lot of the times I was six not out, fourteen not out, and then you know at, at Christmas I'd only scored ninety or hundred runs, but I was only being dismissed I think once. So. Um, First game after Christmas, we played Balmain away. It was called Balmain then at Drummond Oval. They're called Sydney Cricket Club now, but they used to be called Balmain, and it's a beautiful track. Well, it's a flat wicket. And uh, Jimmy Sinclair, the fellow I referenced earlier, nuts, they call him. He was sick. So the skipper said, Irish, you're going to bat three today. So I said, happy days. And I think I got 46 uh, off the top of my head in a 50-over in a, in a game. And... Uh, 
you know, they kept me up near the top of the order for the rest of the season and, you know, the following season. So that was that was pretty good. I, I kind of took, for once in my life, I took the uh, took the information that was provided by the hierarchy and, and did what I was told. But then I left, I went to North Sydney. So that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a kind of a, a no-go thing to do. People were going from North Sydney to Mossville, which seemed to be accepted. But I, being the kind of rebel child that I was and always was, always will be, I went the other way. I went to, I joined the Bears, and I absolutely love the Bears. Well, look, Niall, I'm really glad that your memory stretches back so well, nearly 20 years, because I've got a little bone to pick with you, actually. Um, so a, que- a question on, uh, yeah, look, Irish cricket tactics. I was lucky enough to uh, go on tour to Ireland and, and play a number of games against uh, Development 11s. Um, culminating in a game at Stormont actually against uh, the Irish Development Eleven, but the day before we played the Northern Irish team at Stormont um, and they took us out on the town in Belfast that night and I want to say that this was sabotaged because they absolutely ruined us and we got our arses handed to us the next day by the Irish uh, Development Eleven, um, including the likes of I think both Joyce brothers played um, I think Andy Patterson, who played a little bit at Sussex, was in that side as well. Um, you played a couple of games earlier in the week as well. Um, so, yeah, I just want to know, was that a deliberate tactic that, you, you know, you inflicted on touring teams to, you know, take them out in Belfast on a rainy Tuesday night and get them hammered so that they couldn't perform at, uh, you know, the biggest game of the week? Listen, if, if, you can't, if you can't handle your drink, you know, that's your problem. That has nothing <laughs> to do with me. Um was <laughs> Irish. Was Irish. We're used to we're used to socialising and and fronting up the next day and playing. So, listen, I'm not I'm not going to make any uh, apologies live on on your show for you being a lightweight. Uh, <laughs> and dare I say it, a whinging pom. No, look, it was all good. Um, I think Ken Rutherford was involved in your coaching setup and he had a big grin on his face. Um, the next day, um, I just remember being woken up to go in and bat number five on that day. I was asleep under a bench until it was my turn to go in. We'd we'd had that bad a night, I think. So, um, but Ken uh, but, Rutherford, that would, been, that would have been what two thousand or two thousand and one? Yeah, I think it was. Two, yeah, I think it was two thousand. Um, but look, we um, you've indulged me enough already. Let's let's move on and talk uh, World Cup. So I will hand over to to Stu. Yeah, Niall, look, I think you know that um, I've had a fair bit to do with one of your old teammates, Paul Mooney. He was, a, he was my club coach at, at Rickerton a, a year or two after the the 2007 World Cup. And um, in, in chatting to him, he, he kind of put me on to that Breaking Boundaries doco, and which, yeah, for anyone who hasn't watched that, that's uh, a must-watch, an absolute cracker. Um, and I could probably, honestly, I could probably take up the rest of our, our chat just talking about that tournament. Um, but I'll try and kind of keep myself on track. I do want to ask a few things definitely about that Pakistan game. And the first thing really is um, around Trent Johnson's speech at the the break, because that documentary made it seem like the most epic speech that I've ever seen. He was pointing around the room and this is, um, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you know, the Irish team at the time, a lot of, a lot of amateurs were playing and he's pointing around the room going, you know, do you want to be back delivering the mail next week? Do you want to be back at your dad's farm? Let's go and get these 133 runs and we've got another month in the West Indies. I mean, was that speech as good for you guys in the dressing room as it, as it came across on the doco? Yeah, that, that documentary is amazing, actually, to be fair. Um, just trying to remember, Paul, Paul um, my good pal Paul, Paul did the documentary. And I was, how that documentary came about, I don't know if you know this, I was doing a one-on-one coaching session at North Sydney Oval in 2000 and, oh, it must have been, I was playing for the Bears, 2005, and I had an Irish cricket top on, and this dude just kind of lolloped through North Sydney Oval, kind of like, you know, just bouncing through, and came up to me, he said, Is that, you play cricket for Ireland? I said, yeah, I do. And uh, he said, oh, like, you guys are in the World Cup in a few years. I said, yeah, 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 I'll be there, like, you know, all being well, unless I'm you know, injured or something, I'll be there playing. And he said, oh, cool. So he took my number and um, he kind of kept in touch with me a little bit. Then six months before the tournament, he said, oh, no, let's um, I'm uh, going to do a documentary on the on the World Cup. So uh, I'll be kind of in the background doing a bit of filming, as it were. So just, you know, hopefully give me give me a few snippets. So uh, it was quite nice, actually. That's how, the, that's how that documentary came about. Um, but that speech, I actually can't remember. Genuine hand on heart, 
I can't remember that speech. I think I was very much kind of when I was in in the kind of playing mode. Uh, I was very focused um, on what I had to do, and I knew I was batting four, so I was getting my pads on and just kind of probably had my head down. I I was sitting right over in the corner. I like sitting in the corner dress rooms. I never like sitting in the middle and having people all around me. I sat as far over to the le- Trent Johnson's left, I think, right before the showers. Um, that's where I sat. So I was kind of a little bit hidden, hidden from TJ's eyeline a bit, and also probably the camera. But when you look at that video, you're like, "Wow, that's <laughs> like that's some serious stuff there." Like TJ, for a bloke who's, uh, uh, you know, he was he was an epic player and he was a superb captain. He did he did lead by example, but that was. That was like really, really strong stuff. Uh, and when he's pointing at Kenny Carroll, my old mate from my club, who's a postman by trade, uh, do you want to go back on Monday morning in the pissing rain in Dublin, being chased by a Labrador, being chased by an Alsatian as you deliver a bit of post? Boyd Rankin, do you do you want to be back milking in your dad's cows on the farm in Derry? Come on, lads. It's 130-odd. We can do this in our sleep. But uh, I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure it uh, it made a few of the boys stand up and say, "Yeah, because we're having a good time and we're in the Caribbean. We were looked after really well. We'd been there probably four or five weeks already, and um, we had a cracking time both on and off the pitch. Uh, our coach, Aidy Burrell, who's a teetotaler, but likes the boys to have a good time when the time is right. He kind of he had an expression, tie the dogs loose, which means go get absolutely hammered. I'll see you in two days of practice. Um, so the boys." took advantage of that. We had a really social tournament that World Cup, but we worked our socks off. I would say this without knowing what, what other teams did in that tournament. I reckon we trained and practiced as hard as any team in that tournament, especially on our fielding. Um, I think we we're probably one of the best fielding teams in that competition. But at the same time, if there was a night out to be had, the Ireland boys were there till the till the death, till the bars were closed and we had a right time. So we won a lot of fans over in that respect, both locals and people who were there to follow the cricket. We were kind of the, the uh, everyone's second favourite team, unless you're an Irish person. So I think that speech for TJ was great. Did it have an impact on us winning the game? Maybe so. It didn't necessarily impact on my performance, I don't think, because I, as I said, I can't really remember that speech. We were not for, we were, we were very, very few for two down early on. So whether it revved up the Pakistanis, I don't know, but... Uh, I was certainly out batting very early in the piece, and uh, and we and we should probably should mention that you did score a match winning seventy two out of those hundred and thirty three runs. Um, but but I I guess I um you mentioned it just before, but I mean what what a crazy twenty four hours for you guys after that. You guys win the game. It, you, there's footage on that docker of you guys going enjoying the party afterwards, and then you know you wake up to the news about Bob Woolmer. I, I remember Paul talking to me that. You know, you guys were all on polygraphs and stuff the next day. I mean, can you kind of just describe how how crazy that was at that time? Yeah, it was it was a, it was a bit of a whirlwind. You know, you know, from the from the match itself, we obviously tied against Zimbabwe. We kind of got out of jail a little bit against the Zimbos. <clears throat> Excuse me, they should have won the game, and we've somehow clawed our way back and you know tied our first ever World Cup game, which was which was cool in a way. And uh, would love to win, obviously, but then we knew. We, we knew if we beat Pakistan, we're we're pretty much through because of the results from the first game. I think West Indies turned over Pakistan game one, so we knew if we beat Pakistan, we are pretty much through with um, the win and the tie because Pakistan could only get two points unless Zimbabwe turned over Pakistan last game. So all of a sudden, it's actually such a big game. And I remember opening the curtains. I didn't sleep. I reckon if I had one hour of sleep night for Pakistan game, that was it. I was. Always a bad sleeper before big games. Um, you know, I was never nervous when I played the match, but night before I was a very, very bad sleeper. And I, if I got one hour of sleep, that was that was max. I, I opened the curtains in the uh, Pegasus Hotel in Kingston, and I swear it was Paddy's Day, of course. So <clears throat> there was a um, you know good Irish vibe around. A lot of messages kind of going around, Happy St Patrick's Day and all that. And it was grey. It was a grey morning. You know, just little Irish drizzly rain. You could have been, you could have been anywhere in Ireland, and it would be the weather would be the same. Got to the ground, covers came off, green pitch, like everything is in our favour here. It's cold, 
it's wet, the pitch is green. We know how to play on seamy pitches. We are brought up playing on the ball, moving off the seam and in the air. Pakistan less so. Um, and the pressure of the game. You know, we thought, hold on a minute, this is something's written in the stars here. And I remember saying to Trent Johnson, no pressure, but you have to win that toss. <laughs> said, you win that toss and we ball, we'll win this match. He was like, no pressure, Nobby. But I said, just win the bloody toss, mate, would you? <laughs> anyway, we did. Stuck them in. Um, everything stuck. We took our catches. I think in the Zimbabwe game, we put down a couple of dollies. I dropped a dolly off Duffin, left-hander. Nicked one off Boyd Rankin. Simple as you like. Absolutely clanged it. Just nerves. Next ball, Morgan dropped a dolly off Duffin. And the next ball, Duffin edged one through, and I held onto it. The big lad Duffin from Zimbabwe, I don't know if you remember him, he walked off, kicking the ground, effing and blinding, as if he was unlucky to be in. He just nicked three balls in a row. But anyway, we caught everything against Pakistan. Morgan took a couple of goodies and slipped. Both uh, held on a slip. I juggled one up, standing up the stumps off Kev to get rid of Sean Malik off an inside edge. Um, we gave him 30-odd extras, which you know, should have only been chasing 105, really. But then the chase, you know, I went, I was out there early, which, you know, as bad as it seems, sometimes I like being out there early, batting at number four. Obviously, I wanted my numbers one, two, and three to do really well. But often if I was out there at 10 for two, I actually kind of relished that. I enjoyed it. Uh, but I had no form whatsoever. You know, my form leading into the tournament was horrific. Um, I had food poisoning in Kenya in the pre, pre-tournament uh, tour. got no runs. Didn't get any runs against Zimbabwe. Got a couple of starts in the warm-up games in, in um, against Canada and South Africa. So I had no form, absolutely no nick. I had no right to get any runs. Didn't bat the day before practice because I said to the coach, "My form is that bad. I'm not going to have a net because I just feel I'll get myself even more wound up, even more frustrated." Um, didn't hit a ball in the morning. The Pakistan game, during a rain break in the interval. Eddie Burrell, the coach, took me out to the back of the car park. I had some throwdowns, underarms, full tosses in a gravelly car park. This was my preparation. Pakistan fans were walking past, pointing, laughing at me, as if to say, this is the kind of opposition, this is these clubbies. Um, but I got a few out of the middle early. I think Mohamed Sami, who's my ex-Kent teammate, um, gave me a bit of width early, and I got into the contest, and, you know, competitive juices flowed, and we, we managed to, I managed to play well, obviously, and, should have really got the game over the line. I played a horrific shot with 20 to win. You know, I just hit big six and the adrenaline. I tried to do it again. I should have walked off there 85, 90, that really. Um, but I walked off 20 to win. We got about six wickets in hand. Kev's at the crease, walking the park. Well, by the time I had two pads off, there was two more roars. White gone, McCallum gone. And all of a sudden, we're right up, right up <laughs> up against it with the captain and big Kev at the crease. Kev was blocking the arse off him, but doing a good job. And uh, big TJ, he picked that slow ball beautifully. As I moved, back of the hand slow ball, I think it was. TJ clubbed it into the stand. And as you said, we, we went off straight from the ground to a hotel in Ocho Rios where 2,500 Irish fans were staying. And we were just told, have a good time for two days. But as you mentioned, woke up the next day with sore heads and uh, the awful news that the great man Bob Warmer was dead and that was you know you talk about having a sore head and being hung over and waking up pretty quick and snapping out of it that was a, a moment in our lives that very very difficult to actually explain you know someone who we just saw the day before someone who was a legend in the in the world game you know innovative coach changed the way cricket was played really you know for a lot of nations um, someone I had a lot of respect for. Obviously, was was with Warwickshire for a long time. Did a lot of great things in county county championship, and then to find out the sad news um, that he had passed away. And as you know, you mentioned Paul Mooney, who's a legend of Irish cricket, a great man. Now we're getting our fingerprints taken. We're doing this test, that test. Um, it really was a bit of a numbing a numbing feeling, and it was it was a very sad day for the world game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can you know I can remember when that happened. Even just just watching as a as a fan. I mean, you you talk about um, I guess I guess a lot of things they focused on in that doco was um you know just that I guess the level that Irish cricket was at at that point. And then you guys go to the World Cup and and win that. And yeah, I re- vividly remember it as well. Suddenly, all of us were Ireland was our our second team. How much did that change things? 
in Ireland, you know, in terms of boosting the profile of cricket? Oh, it, it changed cricket overnight. You know, that's not over, over. Uh, I suppose analyzing the situation. But you look at the team that went to the twenty eleven World Cup, for example, Paul Sterling, who'd been around since two thousand eight. George Dockrell made his debut two thousand and ten, and those guys stay there in school, and they had they got kicked time off from school to go watch watch the cricket at home. So the, you know, there is two young players who have, have been brilliant for Irish cricket in George Dockrell and Paul Sterling. You know, watching cricket, watching Ireland beat Pakistan and being given the kind of, I suppose, the confidence to think that maybe they can go on and, and play professionally for Ireland and have a career. So there's just two examples of how cricket changed in Ireland overnight. Um, you know, all of a sudden, everyone knew who Irish Irish cricketers were. You know, the O'Brien brothers, for example, you know, you'd walk in to a bar and, you know, some random punter would come up and say, you're doing the country proud and buy you a pint. Mum and dad... Every time they got in a taxi in Ireland, taxis, free taxis, Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien, you know, but that, that only lasts so long, you know, and Irish sport and Irish people love their sport. And for all, you know, that's March, April time, you know, soon there's going to be Gaelic and Hurling on, which is going to be massive. And then the football season starts again and, and cricket kind of gets pushed back a little bit. So that's why it was important for Ireland to keep going to these World Cups, keep um, kind of refreshing the memories of the general public in Ireland, that Irish, the Irish have a good cricket team. And also for sponsorship, marketing, advertising, making the people in the office in Ireland, making their job a bit easier, performing on the world stage. Uh, it did change. It was a game changer. I still think probably if you fast forward four years, you know, it was probably a bigger game changer in Bangalore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've given that we've got an Englishman on, on the show here, I, I think you'd better talk us through that win uh, and and a little bit about uh, you probably got to give your brother a shout out there <laughs> yeah listen that was that was class that was an incredible day um, and the team had come a long way you know as, as we kind of mentioned 2007 two or three professionals 2011 everyone's professional everyone has been professional for a couple of years we've got a new coach you know in Phil Simmons who was very very different than the previous coach AD Burrell AD didn't have much of a professional career, but was meticulous in planning. Phil Simmons had a stellar international and domestic career, was held in the highest regard by all the team. As soon as he came in, you know, Phil Simmons was talking, you're listening. Um, and he kind of brought the team on to the next stage. I think AD took us as far as he probably could. That's why AD stood down at the right time and gave the team a, a fresh set of eyes. Um, AD was probably the best coach I ever worked under. Phil Simmons was an amazing coach to work on, you know, especially on tour. And when you got good one-on-one time. So now the World Cup, again, good pitches in India, you know, flat tracks. We knew we were going to get good surfaces. We knew you know, the weather was going to be good. We knew we'd have good support. You know, that was one thing we definitely knew we'd have. Uh, the Indian people really got behind Ireland um, as a nation from the outset. Chasing three twenty was it three twenty three, give or take. Good score. English should have got more. English should have got way more. You know, English should have got three fifty, three sixty, um, and put the game to bed. Um, Jonathan Trott played nicely. We bowled with our spin bowlers bowled with at least one man inside the circle at mid on and mid off for the whole innings. He never tried to hit the ball over the top. You know, it was, it was a good innings, but it was an innings that he never really put us under pressure. Um, that's not taking anything away from a bloke who got so many international runs and he's a wonderful player. But at the mid-innings break, you know, we, 320 on, boys, we can chase this down, no problem at all. And that was that was a change in the belief, that the change in the guard that Irish cricket had. Years and years before that, it probably would have been, right, let's get a good score, let's get as close as we can and put up a respectable chase. And I still think in that tournament, there were other associate nations that would have went along that kind of mindset. Let's try and get to like 260, 270 and have a respectable loss. At the minute of break, Phil Simmons said, we're going for this from the outset. Take this on. If we get bowled out for 150, 160, I don't give a crap. We're going to try and win this game and we're going to try and set a marker down um, in the world game. So all of a sudden, you've got your coach saying to you, boys, back yourselves. Because I'm backing you right now to chase this down. 
you know, we probably went a bit too gung ho. We probably went a bit too, a little bit too hard and got ourselves in some, you know, some strife. And I think we we're 112 for five at one stage. Um, Sterling played a couple of nice shots, then caught in the deep. Porterfield was out first ball. Jimmy Anderson dragged on. Um, I hit, I think I clubbed a six or a top edge of six somewhere. Oh, hit. I got dropped over the line by Jimmy Anderson off Swanee for a six and then had a filthy hack and got bowled. Yeah, I still remember Bumble commentating. <laughs> I think he said, O'Brien oh, has a filthy hack, and it was. And Bumble, Bumble was spot on. And then Joycey ran past one, stumped. Uh, myself and Joycey were in the, in the sheds for a while after, effing and blinding, cursing our luck, this, that, and the other. And all we heard was, shot, Kev, shot, Kev, shot, Kev. Me and Joycey looked, what's going on out there? And the next thing, 12th man, it might have been Andrew Weiss, said, no, but you got to get inside. Kev's on 49, not out. He said he'd only been out there 20 minutes. What's going on? So we went out. Me and Joycey ran outside. And, um, yeah, incredible, incredible batting. Um, just slaughtering the England bowlers. You look back, listen, it wasn't a great England team. Let's be realistic about it. But some of the batting, some of the stroke play, the arrogance, um, the puffing of the chest, you know, the 102-meter six off Swanee, the audacious shots off the likes of... Uh, Anderson and Co. He got a bit of luck along the way. I think Matt Pryor dropped him, maybe. Might have been put down once or twice. Peterson was off the field with a sore ankle. I don't know if you know Bangalore, but you share you share a kind of communal viewing area. So Ireland are on one side, and there's only a set of steps or a little kind of walkway, and England are on the other side. And KP, <laughs> the great batsman, was should be doing this, should be doing that while he's icing his ankle. I just looked over. I shouted to him, why don't you go on and field, man, instead of, instead of, criti- instead of criticising your teammates from the balcony? Wow, that riled up the English uh, off-field management. Like, there was, oh, my God, unbelievable. I actually went, I probably went a bit too far, truth be told. Um, but it was just kind of the emotion. Ireland, we're smashing England here. You know, a lot of history goes into it. Obviously, Irish sport, English sport, and the history of bygone eras, uh, whether you buy into that or not, but Kevin's innings was amazing. You know, the fastest World Cup torn. Uh, shame he wasn't there at the end, but yeah, the couple of other significant contributions in that game. You look at Alex Cusack, brilliant cricketer for Ireland, um, awesome all rounder, played such a good foil for Kev, played a really good hand. And then John Mooney, who's you know, probably my favourite Irish cricketer, one of my one of my closest friends within the game of cricket. He bowled pretty. He got four wickets, John Mooney. No one ever talks about it. Uh, I know he went, He probably went for 60-odd, but he got four poles, and he's there at the end, clipping that ball through mid-wicket for four. So, unfortunately for Cusack and John Mooney, who played so well, they don't, probably don't get the recognition they deserve, but Kev's done. Best innings probably... Uh, I'd say his test match tour against Pakistan was better, but... Probably not, not, no more significant a century. And that game, I think, beating Pakistan in 07, put Ireland on the map. That game in 2011 made sure Ireland were on that map for, you know, forever in terms of the world watching the cricket nations. So I think such a, such a classic performance. You know, awesome day for Kev. Uh, awesome day for the family. My mum and dad are there. Kevy's missus was there. Um, and that was a, that was another good night, another good celebrations. We had a, it was Strauss's birthday. We got back to the hotel. The bar was closed. Incredible in Bangalore, the ITC hotel in Bangalore. We got back expecting the champagne and to be flowing. The bar, the owner, the manager of the hotel bar closed. We said, I don't think so. That bar is getting opened up one way or the other, mate. You're either opening that bar or else we're going to break that bar down. And, um, we had a good party, and it was Strauss's birthday. England were England were checking out. Not many people know this, but England were checking out the next morning. They were on a flight very early in the morning, so all the players were putting their bags in the, I suppose you call it the hallway around the rooms. And the way the hotel is there, the the hotel, the bar, and the reception, you look up, and the rooms are all around the hotel, so you can just see all the players, England players, chucking their bags out into the landing for their management to kind of collect and load up for the early flight. Strauss's birthday, so we start singing at the top of our voice, happy birthday, dear Strauss, uh, from the lobby. I'm sure much to the annoyance of 
the England team who've just been beaten by their lowly neighbours, Ireland. But credit where it's due, Straussy, Matty Pryor, and I think Paul Collingwood came down and joined us for a couple of beers. Um, because I think they also recognise, you know, once the dust settles two or three hours after the game, you know, such a significant win for Ireland. As difficult as it was for England to take, losing to Ireland, they probably realised what an amazing feat and what a big moment in the world game it was for Ireland to beat England and, and get some important points. So it was nice actually to to have a beer with some of the England team after the game because I think it's something that doesn't happen enough nowadays. Awesome. Well, the guys have just sent me a message to say I can take the next bit after yeah sitting here listening distraught for the last uh, the last two or three minutes. And no, we we always like to to finish the podcast on a little bit of a quick fire round. Um, feel free to elaborate if there's a bit of a yarn though but we're going to go through some quick fire um, questions from your career and um, first out of the ranks um, favourite innings you've played 72 Pakistan Paddy's Day you know obviously reasons playing terrible before that pretty much got myself back and forth man of the match yeah loved it warm up on a car park who's the toughest bowler that you kept wicket to Murley played at Kent with Murley you know didn't know which way the ball was turning still don't know which way the ball is turning absolute magician awesome you said John Mooney was one of your favourite teammates who was the guy you didn't want to room with <laughs> didn't want to room with probably TJ he was that tight he'd never he'd leave you with a room bill at the end of a tour <laughs> awesome favourite ground Sabina Park, Jamaica, for obvious reasons, loved it. UK, I love Trent Bridge. Always wanted to play for Nottinghamshire, but there was some bloke called Chris Reed who just kept getting him away of any chance of playing there. I don't know who he was. Who was Reedy? Nice segue onto wicket keeping. Is it acceptable to keep wicket in short sleeves and or a floppy hat? (laughs) I'm going to get absolutely nailed down on it for this. I don't think it is. I think Trent Woodhill will probably watch this and say, absolutely. I'm thinking Seb Gotch. <laughs> That's who I'm thinking. Uh, I wouldn't do it. I'm not cool enough. But, uh, if someone's cool enough, go for it. But I might have a word on commentary about it. <laughs> what about pads underneath your trousers? No, nah, I don't like it. Don't like Good. it one bit. Good. You can come back. <laughs> Any superstitions that you had? Um... Uh, I'm not an overly superstitious person, although people probably say I was. I don't think, I can't think of any, so I'll say no. Best sledge you've heard or given? Oh, I think the best, one of the best sledges I've probably received was Shane Warren. He called me a peanut. <laughs> I won't say the words he said before that, but it was something up, a peanut. And uh, coming from the great man Shane Warren, I just had to accept it. Awesome. When we get him on the podcast, we'll ask him all about it. And look, we'll let you indulge um, with the last one. So yeah, feel free to elaborate here. But um, we talked about your stats earlier on. What what are you proudest of when you look back on your career? Oh, yes, it's that's that's an interesting question. What am I most proud? Listen, my, my I was never my my goal or dream was never to be a professional cricketer. You know, my dream was to play for Ireland. Um, so I suppose. Proudest is to play for my country, represent my country, following my dad's footsteps. Once I played international cricket, I wanted to play test cricket. You know, so to to have played one test, okay, I didn't do very well, but I played a test match. Um, didn't bag a pair, which I could have done uh, because I should have been run out. Should be run out by about four yards whilst on a pair trying to get off that dreaded pair. So I suppose playing test cricket, you know, I'm extremely proud of. And longevity of career, you know, I, I forged a a very long professional career in the county game and I love county cricket. I love what county cricket does and brings. So just, you know, I suppose playing from a country, playing test cricket and forging a long and fairly successful and enjoyable career. I enjoyed every minute of it. Awesome. Well, Niall, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you this evening. Very best of luck um, calling a tournament that we're all uh, looking forward to, particularly with the dearth of international cricket at the moment with everyone seeming to uh, pull up the ladder on whatever tour they're due to go on. So 
um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing the action on the TV over the course of the next uh, few weeks. But look, thanks for indulging us on the Top Order podca- podcast this evening. Um, it, we will stick the link to the Breaking Boundaries documentary in the description notes for the podcast because if you've not seen it and you're a cricket fan, it is a fantastic uh, watch. But Niall, many thanks for talking to us here uh, tonight on the Top Order podcast and go well. Thank you, gentlemen. Very enjoyable.